Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Deconstructive Criticism. I am Aaron Flam, and if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know that one of the staples is researchers in psychedelics. Consciousness, religion, philosophy, technology, and the next step in our evolution are all subjects that intersect in the human propensity for getting fucked up. Unfortunately, the war on drugs put a moratorium on research into hallucinogens for nigh on half a century, delaying what could prove to be vital research into these fascinating compounds. But since more and more countries are coming to the realization that the war on drugs has been misguided, to put it lightly, it is getting easier and easier, though it is still pretty hard, so don't break out your home chemistry set just yet to get permits for research. One of the goals of this podcast is to collect all of these explorers. Previous episodes feature, among others, David Nutt on LSD and Jordi Reba on Ayahuasca and DMT. Links can be found beneath this episode on my Patreon page. Which reminds me to remind you that even though my business model is to produce and publish for free, donations are more than welcome. My name on Patreon is Aaron Flam, that's Aaron with one A and Flam with one M. Donate as much or as little as you like. With your help, I have already paid a hefty sum of money to Squarespace to start building a website for this podcast, where I hope to publish both this podcast as well as texts and video content. Also, with your help, I will soon be purchasing a new computer that lets me record better sound and image over Skype, as well as possibly give me the power to edit some content myself, something my current computer, a very old douchebook air, doesn't seem to be able to do very well. If you're Swedish, you can always wish me on 0768943737. That's 0768943737. Earlier this spring, I went to a lecture by a visiting researcher named Thomas Palanicek on psilocybin and the psychedelic experience. Not only did Thomas reveal new data on the molecule that has made magic mushrooms such a popular portal to the divine for the last tens of millennia, he also confirmed some previously held beliefs about punk music. Thomas' research focuses on psilocybin's effects on perception, psychedelic experience, and neural dynamics. Thomas's field, therapeutic application of psychedelic substances, have grown in popularity in the last few years with promising results from small studies. But what do we really know about its long-term effects? And why would a psychomimetic state have a long-term positive effect? These are the type of questions that interest Thomas Palanicek. Tomas is a medical doctor and PhD. He has spent the last 15 years of his life researching MDMA, LSD, ketamine, 2CB, mescaline and cannabis. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? At the moment, he's leading an fMRI study at Prague Psychiatric Center to chart the effects of psilocybin on perception and neural dynamics. Enjoy. Welcome to Sweden, Tomas Palanicek. Is that uh, the correct pronunciation of your name? Well, almost. In Czech we pronounce it Tomáš Pálenicek, but you did well. Uh, okay, Tomáš. 
welcome to Sweden. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you are a researcher. Yes. In psychedelics. Yes. And uh, you have just finished a pretty large study. Well, it's not finished yet. The first part of the study is finished. But uh, yes, we finished a pretty large study with psilocybin and healthy volunteers. So could I just ask, what type of researcher are you to begin with? Well, I'm a neuroscience researcher. And uh, my education is both doing preclinical science as well as clinical research. And I'm also a clinician as a psychiatrist. Okay. And um, you're from the Czech Republic. I'm from Czech Republic. I'm from Prague. I was born in Prague. And most of my life I spent in Prague. I never traveled for longer uh, time outside of Prague, like working in another facility or in another institution. But yeah, I stay in Prague. And your research, uh, the, the latest program, is on the molecule psilocybin. Yes. And that is the active substance in magic mushrooms. Exactly. And how did you get into that area of research? Well, actually, uh, that happened probably already when I was uh, on a primary school and, and high school. I was interested a lot in chemistry. And uh, I was studying uh, some books about uh, alkaloids, compounds that are natural drugs that uh, are uh, present in plants. And I was fascinated by opioids and fascinated by stimulants and whatever. And How uh, old were you? Uh, I was like uh, 14 years old, especially. All right. And It's a very so unhealthy interest for a child. Uh, well, uh, chemistry. <laughs> well, I never was interested in... If you're into the breaking bad part of chemistry, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know why it was attracting me. But, well, it attracted me. And uh, today, I must say, it wasn't that bad that it attracted me at that time. So, uh, and initially, I wanted to be a chemist. And uh, then I had a very interesting interview with one of the professors of the medical faculty, like deciding to which university should I go after finishing high school. And uh, this professor told me, like, okay, if you go for chemistry, you will just be chemist and you will do chemistry. But if you go for medicine, you can do much more things. You can do chemistry, you can work with people, you can do research, you can do preclinical science and whatever you want. And he gave me a book, and this book was about hormones. So I make some presentation at school. And uh, the last word at the book was written by Isaac Asimov. And I was at the time a real fan of Isaac Asimov and this uh, foundation, I think it's in English, yes. the name of the The, fam- of the Foundation Trilogy. Yeah, Foundation yes. Trilogy. Hexology, no? It, uh, six it, books, it, actually, I think. Is it? All right. Yeah. <laughs> I think, if I remember it correctly. So uh, that was, that was uh, the reason which forced me, like, or which made me uh, to decide myself uh, that I probably should go for medicine. I was accepted for chemical universities, but then I then I tried to pass the exams for medical faculty, and I was accepted for one. So I started to study there. I'm what was the last line that. of the Asimov book? Uh, what was the last line of the Asimov book? Was there last a, word? Yes, uh, it was uh, because Asimov was biochemist, so he was. Uh, I don't remember anymore because it's like maybe more than twenty years ago. So, but uh, just it was like one small page. Uh, saying something about hormones, and it was written by Asimov. So I said, "Okay, maybe that's that's the way I should I should go in the future." So you've had no personal experience with drugs before you went into the field of research. Uh, of course, I had. Yes. Like uh, Czech Republic is one of the countries where people are experimenting a lot, and uh, initially I I didn't have the experience, of course, like on the high school. But then, of course, during the late years of being at a high school and uh, during studying medicine I had experiences with various compounds as a recreational user let's say of course yes but yeah. uh, because that's because uh, I was at your lecture yesterday mm-hmm. and you mentioned the MDMA and you mm-hmm. said well this was back in the 90s i suppose yes yes and uh, so that was your drug of choice at the time or well uh, i experienced uh, MDMA like most of the people around my uh, my circle from from the group where i was where I was uh, present, and uh, but after some some time of the life, like let's say two or uh, three years of, of uh, partying and so on, most people just stop doing uh, yeah. doing this uh, experimental usage and we turn back to more uh, relaxed relaxed fun and going back for sports and, and things like that. So yeah, and a beer. Yeah, and a beer, just yes. beer, of course. Yes. So, uh, so that was your personal experience, and did that make you curious about consciousness at all, or? Uh? 
Uh, well, uh, was there other aspects of uh, of the drugs that you were interested in, research-wise? Well, I was interested uh, in how they affect the brain. What's the me- I was interested in how they affect the brain and how these powerful compounds can induce such profound changes of consciousness and whether they can be also used for treatment. And actually, uh, one of my first ideas when I started to do my PhD was why we should not try to use MDMA to treat depression. Yeah. Actually, I didn't have the background and the knowledge why it probably wouldn't be effective in, in depression. But with the knowledge we have now, uh, we know that MDMA can be used in the treatment and it's started to be used in, in uh, the treatment of PTSD. Yeah. And the phase three clinical trial is on the way. So uh, the usage of uh, the psychoactive compounds in, in clinics seems to be, uh, or seems to have some renaissance, let's say. Yeah, but it's uh, primarily to deal with trauma and not depression of a long-term kind. MDMA is not for depression at this time, but uh, psychedelics like psilocybin or ketamine or maybe LSD as well, they seem, or ayahuasca, they seem to be quite powerful tools to uh, treat resistant, pharmacoresistant depression. Yeah, as you said at your lecture, the, the results you've found so far are actually fascinating. But what... what uh, what separates your study from Robert Carhart uh, Harris study? Well, uh, the first moment was like we wanted to uh, work with these compounds in humans for a long time. And since there was uh, no such research in Czech Republic ongoing since, since the 70s, uh, we wanted to start with something uh, much earlier before we started this, this clinical trial. So we started with studies in animals with MDMA, LSD and other psychedelics. And then we moved through these preclinical experiments to first clinical experiments with ketamine, which was at the time legal. But still the intention was to use uh, psychedelics uh, like psilocybin or LSD in the human research. But that was a big challenge because there were no, <clears throat> there were no ways uh, or no uh, approaches how, uh, or manuals how to use these compounds in healthy volunteers or in patients. So it was like a journey to get to these compounds. And uh, this first study was mainly uh, designed, uh, we designed it as, uh, or we used psilocybin as a model of psychosis, but because that was the uh, most feasible way how to start working with these compounds in healthy volunteers. And of course, the intention was like to prove the safety uh, in our controlled setting, to look on how uh, the brain works during the altered state of consciousness, which might resemble psychosis, and uh, then to plan future studies where we want to go more deep into the brain functioning and also to the therapeutic effect of psilocybin and possibly other psychedelics. So it was, let's say, a safety study which should show the safety uh, of uh, psychedelic research in healthy volunteers and uh, safety use of uh, uh, drugs which are uh, not listed in in between compounds with uh, theoretical medical use or medical potential. And that was the most important step. So, uh, like, the reinitiation of psychedelic, real psychedelic research in Czech Republic. So you started with ketamine because that was legal and rel- judged as relatively safe? It was legal, it is still legal, and uh, the advantage of ketamine is that it is an approved uh, pharmaceutical ingredient, which is used for anesthesia. So to use it in humans, in other indication, you just change the indication, so it's much easier to follow all these steps. So uh, then to register and complete a new compound, which is not listed in any, uh, in any pharma- pharmacopoeia, in any books which uh, list medical compounds that can be used for medical, uh, for medical purposes. So uh, much easier to start with ketamine, definitely. And you started uh, with the psychomimetic approach. Actually, it wasn't my project. It's my supervisor who wrote the first project on ketamine, Professor Horacek. And uh, he started, again, to use ketamine as a model of psychosis. I was participating in, on this study. I was involved as a volunteer as well as, a, as, a, as an examinator. The first part was EEG, MRI. Uh, some of the data were uh, already published. Some of them are still uh, under, under the analysis. And then we did uh, quite a lot of subjects in, on pre-pulse inhibition, which is like a method which measures sensory motor gating. Uh, uh, or that was mainly my part of the study, and I involved like 50 subjects almost, and it's also being processed and in, in, in the process of publishing. And, and hopefully uh, this year we'll, we'll go out with the data as well. So that was the first uh, study on ketamine as a model of psychosis. And uh, afterwards, since already some information about the antidepressant effects of ketamine were published, 
we uh, prepared another project and we started to work with ketamine in depressed patients. But before, we already gave off-label ketamine to one pharmacoresistant depressed patient and we saw the effect that it's so dramatic and robust for a week. So that's, uh, that was the moment when we decided, okay, let's find a way how to change the indication and to use it as a treatment for uh, resistant depression. Yes, and, and from this you also got, uh, because you divided it up uh, quite nicely, uh, the effects and what type of effects you have. Would you care to describe? Because uh, first of all, you, you mentioned the psychomimetic approach, and there are other approaches that have been censored now for uh, <clears throat> a better part of a half century, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and those other approaches are to begin with. Well, uh, there's one which is used like using the, the psychomimetic approach, which is uh, used, which, uh, well, psychedelics are used to model psychosis because they in the state. Uh, is, character, is characterized by symptoms which are similar to psychosis. And then there are these two main therapeutic approaches, which is psycholytic and psychedelic therapy. Uh, these approaches were used mainly in the past, in the history, when psychedelics were freely used or experimentally used to treat psychiatric disease, diseases or psychiatric disorders. And the psycholytic psychotherapy was using lower doses of psychedelics, but they will still maintain the contact with the, with the subject who was uh, under the influence, while psychedelic was using much higher doses when the subject gets into the complete psychedelic state where he might also lose the contact with reality, and the therapist then work with the integration of, of the experience after after uh, the intoxication. So these are the two main approaches in psych psychedelic and psycholytic therapy using psychedelics. That grew so up psycholytic could be more like a microdosing patient. I, it wasn't microdosing. It were low doses. Microdosing is like very sub-threshold dose. It doesn't induce psychedelic effects. It has some some minimal effects, uh, which people can describe: increased anxiety, a little bit uh, sharper. Uh, they uh, they see objects a little bit which, with sharper objects, and uh, they might have more uh, feel some somatic symptoms of these compounds. But definitely doesn't go into the psychedelic effects with visuals and so on. Uh, the psychedelic effect could be more likened to tripping balls. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's the scientific <coughs> terminology. I, I, I didn't want to get too t yeah. technical. Well, uh, psychedelic, uh, the fully psychedelic, what, what means psychedelic? It means like soul manifesting. So it goes uh, everything which is in, everything what's inside of you can, can be uh, open and, and uh, overwhelm your, your brain or your thinking and uh, it's frequently accompanied by these visuals and uh, with eyes closed, also with eyes open and ego disintegration and so on. So uh, this is not present definitely with microdosing and uh, could be partially present with the psycholytic therapy, but still the people know who they are, where they are, and they have a contact with, uh, with the therapist. But I never did it. It's just like my knowledge, what I know from the books. Okay. And it never did psycholytic therapy and never did psychedelic therapy. But you've done it yourself, on yourself, no? Uh, yes, uh, I was also involved in these experiments. And uh, to be honest, the doses that we used uh, in our uh, psilocybin or ketamine experiments were so high that it was for me like the full psychedelic effect because I, in some points, I really lost the contact with reality. All right, so you're a scientist. Uh, well, it wasn't me first because I was designing the study, so I was at the first measurements, of course. But as a sitter, it was one of our colleagues was uh, was uh, experienced and who uh, agreed to be the first participant of the of the study. So we can because we we were building up the safety uh, setting and or safe setting and working with the subject uh, uh, with so many ex experimental approaches. Uh, can be a little bit stressful to to anyone who is not experienced and who has not knowledge about what you're measuring and so on. So uh, the first experiments were like, yes, I want to see one or two subjects where I will be the sitter and supervisor and conducting these experiments to set everything well done. And then uh, I, I went also into it. So, yeah, it was interesting. We are not excluded, luckily, from, from this kind of studies. Yeah, but, but what, what prompted you to move from ketamine to psilocybin then? I mean, specifically psilocybin. Well, uh, ketamine is not a classical psychedelic. It's, it has a different mechanism of action, induces slightly different experiences, and uh, 
psilocybin is definitely uh, one of the compounds which is very safe, which has an acceptable duration of action, about three hours when it's the peak and six hours when the symptoms worn off. So it's easy to handle in, in a controlled setting. And uh, it was the serotonergic or the classical hallucinogen, classical psychedelic. So you wanted always to go into the research of these classical psychedelics because they uh, are definitely different from ketamine and more interesting to my mind, I would say. Yes, uh, because their consciousness expanding, that's yes. my words, yes. not yours, but yeah. So, um, so what was it that you wanted to find out about psilocybin? Well, as I said, we started to use it as a model of psychosis. So we wanted to find correlates of the psychotic state uh, in some using some neuroimaging uh, approaches, methods, and we've selected uh, EEG as one of the approaches and MRI as the second approach. And mainly we were, we were uh, looking on the connectivity and brain activity, and what we wanted to describe also is the time curse of the effects uh, of uh, during the intoxication, whether it changes over yeah. time. And uh, in the next group, you also want to have a look on whether these changes persist for a longer time uh, in, in brain after the ingestion of the active, active ingredient. And uh, so that was for the psychosis. And we also wanted to have a look on whether it is safe to administer to healthy volunteers. So we did this one-month follow-up, how people respond, uh, if they respond positively to the experience or negatively, or if it's safe to give psilocybin to also drug-naive subjects, which we were able to include in our study as well. And when you say drug-naive, you mean people who haven't tried it before? People haven't tried uh, any psychedelic before. Uh, most of the subjects were experienced with cannabis in Czech Republic because we know the cannabis rates uh, or uh, the uh, lifetime prevalence of cannabis use in Czech Republic is one of the highest in the world. So it's very difficult to find someone who has no previous experience with cannabis at least once in their life. Yeah. But there were some as well. But uh, there were seven subjects for the moment who had no previous experience with psychedelic drugs. No mushrooms, no LSD, nothing like that. How did they do after the study? Well, actually all of them did well. Uh, there was one subject who was, uh, whose experience was pretty much uh, an anxious, with quite a lot of anxiety. But then after a month follow-up, she rated the experience as very interesting and very powerful and that she wanted to go back into it and understand more what, what happened because it opened some of the issues. And that, so that was one which had most of the uh, experience like uh, filled with anxiety but all the others, uh, they referred it to be very interesting and one of the most powerful experiences they had in their life. And uh, also, even though there was some anxiety present sometimes, as one of the most present experiences and that's ecstatic-like experience or universe-connecting-like experience they ever, uh, ever had. That is a, a, a common experience for people who tries these uh, substances. Yes, but not all the time with very high doses. Uh, if they take it in an uncontrolled setting, I would say there might be a lot of experiences which uh, wouldn't be so nice and wouldn't be so bad, especially if they were unexperienced and giving a dose which gets them directly into the full psychedelic world. Yeah, you were very adamant with set and setting yesterday at yeah. the lecture. And I think that's good because we don't want a repeat of the hippie era yeah. uh, because the pendulum can swing back, you know, uh, when it comes to research of this um, special kind. Uh, and you also showed a very nice clip from a Jack Black movie. I don't remember which one. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then you went in and you divided up, um, um, you divided up uh, the types of effects that can occur and you call this uh, the BPRS? Yes, it's a psychiatric scale, brief psychiatric rating scale, which is uh, used clinically to uh, identify the main symptoms which are present in psychiatric disorders. So uh, it detects symptoms of depression, of uh, anxiety or psychotic symptoms, uh, which are typically present. And it's very easy, that scale, a uh, few questions that are like evaluated by, by the examinator or by the, by the specialist or professional and can be uh, handled within five or ten minutes. So it's a very useful tool if you want to look on the dynamics. There are, of course, other scales which are more related to psychotic symptoms like PANS and, uh, and others, but uh, many of them, especially PANS, takes much more time 
to evaluate so it's not easy to do it like uh, during the course of the experiment let's say five times as we did during the measurements okay so uh, and and you listed um, a few dimensions of uh, ASC which mm-hmm. stands for um, if i'm not mistaken it's artist states of consciousness scale exactly which was designed by Dietrich uh, initially and for this first 20 volunteers we used uh, the let's say the traditional the old version with these three main dimensions and we didn't use the five uh, five dimensional uh, artist states of consciousness scale the updated one which was created by the team around transformer which we now implemented in the next 20 subjects so this uh, old version divides the psychedelic experience into three main uh, clusters of effects one of them is ocean and boundlessness which is usually associated to the pleasurable effects uh, losing boundaries and uh, being connected with universe or understanding everybody. Uh, this is a Freudian concept. Yeah. I mean, I think Freud was the first one who, who actually coined the term, at least in in published writing, where he said uh, there is an oceanic feel- feeling associated with religious fervor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, maybe. No, yeah. no that, that's uh, sure. actually where it comes from. Uh, uh-huh. He had a friend who described. Uh, uh, the experience he felt when he was praying or participating in a religious mm-hmm. uh, ritual uh, as oceanic, as, uh, you okay. know, spreading out uh, mm-hmm. ego dissolution, you could call it to a certain extent, couldn't you? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, ego dissolution, it's like the thread of ego dissolution is the second cluster of uh, effects that can be induced, which is more mainly associated with, like, uh, it doesn't have to be completely unpleasant, but it's typically associated with anxiety and, and uh, like, loosening the boundaries of the ego, which could be associated with the unpleasant uh, unpleasant effects, like uh, ego disintegration, uh, which can produce the anxiety. Yes, but that's what's so interesting about, because you, you divide it, so you have, let's say, the three main effects are the oceanic boundlessness, that's one, there's two, dread of ego dissolution. Yeah, and, and then three, yes, visionary de- reconstruction. Uh, but th- the first two, in my mind, seems just like different attitudes towards the same phenomena. Well, uh, theoretically, yes. Uh, it would be interesting uh, to go on the specific questions that they ask on the same issue. But uh, theoretically, finally, yes, it could describe the similar similar uh, patterns, but uh, accompanied with different with different emotional uh, emotional uh, aspects that are related to uh, to uh, going through these experiences. So uh, yeah, I never had this idea. It would be interesting to go back into the questions and compare whether it's not asking all the same thing from different from different uh, sites. Yeah, because, uh, you know, there's this classic, you know, if you take hallucinogens, your body will be covered in insects. And I've actually had that hallucination. Mm-hmm. It's just that my attitude to insects is, cool, I'm covered in insects. It's not, ooh, I'm covered in insects, mm. which is a negative person's way of looking at being covered in insects. And you don't want to be a negative person, do you? No, I don't want to, of course not. <laughs> no. So, uh, uh, so th- that's, uh, that was my question there, because I think that's quite interesting. Have you, you, you've experienced yourself, the oceanic? Yes. 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 And have you experienced dread of ego yes. dissolution? and yeah. a quite strong one as well. All right. Yeah, it was uh, uh, especially like uh, the first, the first uh, trip in the lab was very strong, and it was about completely losing my identity. And I almost, uh, I was smashed to pieces, my ego stopped existing, and it was so visual that I didn't know if I have eyes closed or open, and the reality wasn't there, just simply it was, I was blown up into somewhere. Did you like it or not? No. Uh, the first moments uh, when I tried to control this difficult experience were very uh, associated with a lot of anxiety and were very scary. Uh, especially the thoughts like, if I will be smashed like that, will I come back or not? So these were the uh, most uh, anxiogenic moments of of the experience. But but then I said, okay, so if I do not exist, maybe uh, this is an important important part of my life. Uh, And I just said, okay, I won't try to be, uh, I won't try to control the process of being smashed to pieces. And then I got uh, through this very uh, anxious moments into the very, uh, very pleasant, pleasant states, being in touch with the universe and with everything. So surrender, basically, is your tip. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely, uh, definitely one of the very important things. But people, what we do, people instruct in the 
uh, in, in this, uh, in this uh, experimental, uh, experimental setting, uh, we do not ask them to bring the intention uh, because we do not work therapeutically. We work just like you're observing them. So uh, we ask them to observe and not to control the experience because it's just impossible to control it. Yes. And to be just the intention, let's say, is to be an observer, what it brings to you. So that was like the, the first instructions we gave to the subjects and uh, repeated them frequently on the on the initial interview, then before uh, administering uh, the drug for the first time. And it seems like uh, it, it works well. And many of them reported, yeah, I, I was quite happy for this instruction because uh, it's really impossible to control. Yeah. Especially those who were not experienced before. I'm sorry that I go through your entire lecture, but I found it fascinating. Um, and oh, I, I, I really, ahead. I really liked the way you um, systemized the experience because that made it feel, uh, well, more scientific, I suppose, uh, and uh, and less religious. And I, uh, I've always had uh, slight problems with religion. Fascinating though it is, um, it does have uh, negative effects as well, just like drugs. Uh, yes and no. It's uh, very difficult. Everything could have both sides good and bad yeah. and uh, in general there are of course people who might suffer suffer bad experiences and longer lasting problems with uh, the use of psychedelics but uh, it seems to be much lower incidence when with than with any other compound or any other truck yeah because that's one of the things you compared it with what the negative effects could be compared to alcohol and ketamine or well, for the classical psychedelics, at least from the studies that were published and the big uh, population-based surveys, uh, there was the very interesting finding was that there was uh, less likely for people who are using psychedelics uh, to have a suicidal behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they were uh, with some psychiatric diagnosis, so uh, psychedelic users were uh, spending less time, less time in being as an inpatient than than. Uh, population that do not use psychedelics and it seemed to be associated mainly with the psilocybin, psilocybin use if I remember correctly this study so that's one thing the other thing is like the adverse reactions that might occur after psychedelic use and uh, uh, even though there are like uh, TSM and, and MKN uh, ICD-10 what, uh, what is that? of like the persistent uh, perceptive disorder or uh, so-called flashbacks in both of these classifications uh, of psychiatric uh, disorders, uh, these things are quite quite rare. Uh, in if you compare it to how many people use psychedelics, so uh, yeah. So what percentages are we talking about? Because you threw a, a, you threw some percentages around yesterday. One of the most interesting results, by the way, uh, was that uh, apparently, according to your study or the su- study you cited. Uh, Criminal behavior went down in people who use psychedelics. Uh, yeah, yes, uh, that was a surprise to me. The study, and they looked, and I, I don't know if I say it correctly, it's like criminal offenders, yeah, uh, who were using drugs, and they were controlled for. Uh... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices. Down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Controlled for uh, the use of drugs when they were out of the out of the prison, and uh, well, they found out that only those who were using psychedelics were uh, less likely to being in prison back again, while all the others who use uh, anything, including cannabis, were more likely to commit a crime again. 
So basically, uh, your criminal reform plan, if you were a politician, would be magic mushrooms to the criminals. Uh, hard to say, but it would be nice to repeat this kind of experiments, at least in some people. But yeah. I don't, thought, I don't know that if this would be ethical, because like to study anything on criminals or people who are in jail, it's very problematic, at least from the ethical, from the ethical issues. Yes. Because these people do not have much choice. choice. No, they don't. But you can have a volunteer study even in a prison. Uh, you can have, but yes. it's yeah. it's an issue. I've yes. been in some ethical committees deciding about if they can check for some uh, urine tests for presence of the new synthetic drugs and so on. And it's very, very ethical issue. And uh, if I'm aware, at least from this ethical committee I'm sitting in, in Czech Republic, uh, there was no study that was allowed to be performed on these people who are in prison at the moment yeah. because yeah. it can be misused by the staff. Well, it, it, does, it does make the mind wander towards uh, less uh, pleasant times in human history. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, and you also did um, uh, a comparison between psilocybin and DMT. And you said they have extremely uh, similar... Or you could actually see on the, on, on the results. Well, that, that, that was... An, because we used a scale, hallucinogen rating scale, which we want to validate and to have it also as a tool in Czech language for evaluating the effects of psychedelics, not only the altered state of consciousness scale. It's also a scale which is rated by the, the person who is intoxicated. And uh, this scale, uh, this scale uh, was first used by Strassmann to... Uh, describe the effects of DMT. And uh, so I said, okay, so let's have a look how the effects of DMT looked like compared to what we work with psilocybin and if the scale uh, was translated correctly and so on. And I was so surprised that when I plotted and described the, uh, the, the, the values of the individual subscales, we got almost the same image of this higher Uh, I think it was the highest dose of DMT that Strassmann used in his study with the dose of psilocybin be used in, in our study. Of course, they used it IV. Uh, it, was, it was very short, uh, much shorter acting experience than psilocybin, but uh, at least the qualitative aspects of the intoxications were pretty much the same. Okay. So, and this, this, in general, we think now has to do with ego dissolution. It has to do with this uh, higher connectivity or lower anti-connectivity between uh, what you call them schemata in the brain. Uh, well, well you, 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 because you brought uh, up a, a, yeah. an image of the thalamus in the yeah, brain. Yeah, yeah, about about the networks. Yes, the, the three uh, three uh, network model of how the brain works. Uh, yeah, well, uh, this is far far away to, to connect what we've observed in these behavioral tasks to what we've observed in, in these uh, networks. And we still didn't uh, make the analysis to uh, look on how it is affected by not only ego dissolution, but various aspects of these scales that, uh, that we used to uh, measure the behavioral effects of uh, psychedelics or psilocybin. But this triple network model describes uh, like the three main networks which are typically uh, typically present uh, in normal conscious state. One is the default mode network, which is now uh, intensely studied and is the network which is activated when we focus our attention towards inside, when we are relaxed, closed eyes and not attracting our attention to anything else except to the internal processes. Then it's the task positive or executive network, which is on the contrary activated when we focus our attention on anything outside of us. So if we are conducting any task, the task positive network is activated. And then uh, from this theory, the third network, which is the salient network, decides whether the, uh, or it's like the switch, which switches between the It's a switchboard, basically, uh, yeah, yeah. for information in the it, brain. It, it should I turn you, inwards it, or outwards? Yeah. Uh, it tells you what is relevant and what is not relevant, where you should focus your attention or where you should move your attention. So now, what we found with psilocybin, that these two networks, which are normally uh, the executive network and the uh, default mode network, which are normally anti-correlated because we are not able to focus our attention inside as well as outside, at least in a normal state of conscious consciousness. So we found that psilocybin... Uh, decreased this anti-correlation. So actually it did that uh, uh, the borders in between attention going inside and outside were like... Uh, dissolved. Dissolved. 
and uh, that's probably what people experience, uh, like being at the same time uh, fo unable focusing attention on what's going on from the, uh, the environment as well as what's coming from from deep inside. So uh, it really fits with uh, how psychedelics works, and uh, it also fits with the studies of others which found pretty much similar findings are not only with psilocybin but also with LSD and mainly with, uh, Robin, uh, Robin who did this kind of uh, analysis on MRI and EEG. Yeah, no, I find it fascinating because also if you look at uh, non-scientific literature on hallucinogens like uh, shamanic literature or whatever, uh, they often start out by saying there are two types of trips, the internal and the external trip. And you can switch between the two during a trip if you want to. And um, it's just, uh, well, I guess it's synchronicity in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, after a while, do you think that the science is affected by uh, shamanic literature or, or uh, ideas about trips or uh, religious ideas about uh, Well, definitely there's a group of scientists that is focusing on it. Uh, we also want to uh, have a look a little bit on uh, this effect of set and setting, how it might contribute to the experience itself and whether it might have different different long-lasting effects. So we plan to do some study with uh, ayahuasca in the jungle in a traditional setting with all these shamans and rituals and so on to compare it to the ceremony that will uh, to the ceremony to the experimental setting where do you need volunteers. Yes, we need them. We have a plan how to make it. <laughs> but we need uh, volunteers that will be able to be in Amazonas as well as in, in the lab. So that's... Uh, I will come. Yeah. I will come to the Amazon. I will bring my recording equipment. Yeah, and the other thing is that if you want to make it in Czech Republic, then we need people who are like Czech citizens and uh. speak Czech. So, because if we run something like that in Czech Republic, it must be under specific control regulations and that would be an issue. So I think the first part, like to go and do something with some uh, some people in Amazonas, would be easier. Uh, finally, uh, even though it's not so easy because we communicate with some people from Peru, and and the Peruvian legislation is also not so easy uh, to deal with if you want to do real science and uh, work with human volunteers and so on. And uh, so the other the other issue is like the Czech legislation because ayahuasca is not registered as a treatment tool as a pharmacology uh, product so it would be like an issue to administer something that was uh, imported from Amazonas to healthy volunteers in Czech Republic so that would be like another clinical trial that would take some time yeah I think Jordi Riba freeze-dried freeze his, uh, his drugs mm -hmm. so he could control the substance better Yeah, uh, it was quite an interesting that's, approach that's what we actually want to do like to freeze-dry uh, the same ayahuasca that will be prepared for the ceremony in the Amazonas and to import it to Czech Republic. Okay. Because we can have the permissions to import. The question is whether we can get the permissions to export because we are uh, connected to some Peruvian, uh, Peruvian institutes. So uh, I don't know too much about the system, how it works in Peru, but it should work like the same almost in every country. There's like regulations how to import, export these psychoactive compounds. So we have the perfect so we can do it yeah so but also you you chose peru out of all the countries in uh, south america and yeah uh, you know. most people work in brazil yeah. uh i don't know why maybe it's more feasible uh there's longer tradition of uh ayahuasca use in the santa daima church and uh, uh like more publicly that peru is now known for this uh, ayahuasca tourism a lot But uh, it's probably some, something that comes from my heart because I, li I like Peru a lot. I was traveling there several times and I have friends there and uh, I'm also fluent Spanish. So uh, that's uh, something, I don't know why. But so it wasn't because you read Terence McKenna as a young man and you decided you wanted to go in the same... No, I just, uh, well, uh, one of, it's, to be honest, it's one of the options is going to Peru, the other is Colombia. And we're still deciding how we will make it. But uh, yes, I just decided for Peru. And uh, we also want to go to monitor the very traditional ceremonies of the uh, indigenous people who are not affected by, by, uh, by Western society that much. And since I met a friend who is an anthropologist and works deep in Park Manu, which is one of the 
most protected national park in the Amazonas. And he works with the communities there, so we can get an access there and do some science, hopefully some research with this research. We can at least monitor and have a look on the ayahuasca ceremony and the natives that live in, in the traditional way. So It I sounds like so much fun. I'm, I'm getting really envious and kind of resentful for not being a Czech citizen. And I know I don't speak Czech, at least not when I'm sober, but I don't know. When I ask, I might speak Czech. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, you, you can learn it and then, then it would be maybe possible to become... No, I, in healthy volunteers, no, it's not possible for healthy volunteers to conduct, uh, to be a member of a clinical trial or to be a volunteer of a clinical trial that is uh, under the Czech regulations. Unless you wouldn't be a patient, then if you're a patient... Uh, then you can participate in clinical trials, but not healthy volunteers. So that's I'm out, basically. Yeah. I'll come, maybe, I'll, I'll come as maybe, a podcast observer yeah. from the outside. Yeah, but there are quite a lot of young people here who are like trying to bring psychedelic research into Sweden, so yes. maybe you will get to the point where you might be a participant as well. Well, Sweden has been one of the most adamant um, countries against uh, liberalization of uh, drug policy in the world, at least in the Western world, I think. Uh, but uh, Swedes change quickly. Yeah, but there yeah. is like liberalization and there is like a scientific use or therapeutic use and these yes. things are completely different. Uh, to be honest, Czech Republic is one of the countries which is very, on one side, very liberal or there's a lot of people using a lot of drugs. We are also one of the countries, if not the first country with the highest prevalence rates of psilocybin mushroom use. Uh then at least on the first places, but uh, I think it's about 7% of the young population had experienced psychedelic mushrooms. So it's very popular as well as cannabis where uh, the data say up to in between 40 to 60% of the young population had at least experienced cannabis. And that leads many scientists or many people, including James Bodiman, to say conclusions like, yeah, Czech Republic's drug are, drugs are legal. And this is not true. They are not legal. And because say, I heard it was at least decriminalized. But uh, it's not decriminalized. No, you cannot. Uh, you cannot have drugs uh, with you. Uh, you just it's 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 illegal. But it depends on the quantity, and you can be just fined, or you can be uh, put uh, into the court, and the judge will decide if you cause a crime of possession, higher amounts than small. That's how the law is okay. written, which is not a clever but, way how to write it, but it's not legal definitely at all. What has changed in Czech Republic is that we have now uh, new laws for medical cannabis and we can also produce medical cannabis and we can prescribe medical cannabis. That's, let's say, uh, maybe the thing which is confusing in between uh, decriminalization or legal legalization. So uh, small amounts of any drug uh, every person can have for their personal use and they will probably not be in prison for that. But they might be fine if it's found and it's not legal. Uh, what is legal that you can do with yourself whatever you want, so you can use any drug. No one can tell you anything if you will have 10 drugs inside your body. Uh, that's just your problem. That's like the basic uh, freedom of, of Czech people. But uh, they are not legal. So no. I understand. So uh, one thing that worried me about your results when it came to psilocybin uh, was... Uh, well, first of all, I want to thank you because now we have black on white scientific result that punk music sucks. Okay, uh, <laughs> maybe we should include the neo-punk. <laughs> uh, yes, because you did, um, one of the things you measured were uh, how people react to different types of music. Yeah. Yeah, because we already know through, through cultural experience that musical experience is enhanced on uh, psychedelics. But you went into different types of music. So what different types of music did you test? Well, we tested uh, punk. There was some really hard guitars, like Ministry. I don't know if you know it. Uh, very hard uh, electronic music with hard guitars, like metal almost. And there was this classical music. Uh, there was some electronic music, which is uh, called dance music or underworld, for example. Uh, then this Titans music and some uh, of the types of music which are frequently used as, let's say, the... Uh, music for psychedelics or for meditation, relaxation, and so on. Uh, Pink Floyd, or no? Sorry, Pink Floyd or no? Wales no, song. there was like Handy Garner from. Uh, there were. Uh, I don't. I forgot all. Uh, which all. Uh, 
styles, uh, all the names included. We can check on the on the slides then. But uh, yeah, so the idea was to present different styles of music from different uh, different uh, instruments playing as well, and let the subjects to decide what music they will prefer while being on psilocybin, because. We feel, we feel like music is very important for the experience and we do not want to induce bad experiences or bad moments during uh, during the sessions. Yep. So initially we wanted to let subjects decide what they prefer to hear and they choose uh, classic music as being the most preferable in the relaxed setting and then we saw this effect on sidetrance music which was like the highest increase in, in liking of this, of this yeah. music. People don't like sidetrance when they're sober. Well, because we didn't select subjects from this specific subpopulation of people who like sidetrance and uh, the average age was more than 35 years, I think, if I remember it correctly, or around 35 in, in the study. There were quite a lot of people uh, over 40 And these never went into touch with this kind of music. And they said, well, what's that? Is this disgusting? It's like uh, too much noises and too rhythmic and too loud and doesn't bring anything. But suddenly when they got psilocybin, they started to induce it. They saw much more things in this music than, than before. So that was interesting that also these people who you would not expect uh, might like this, this kind of music. They uh, rated it much, much better than... Without, without the drug. So hallucinogens can uh, de decrease uh, your taste in music. It can worsen your taste in music. That's what you're trying to tell us. Uh, theoretically, uh, well, it, it enhances the perception of music. That's one thing. Yes. And to be honest, it, yeah, theoretically, yes. It enhances <laughs> the liking of the music. So yes. It, And understand, you preference. get a new understanding from music. Yeah, because I, maybe I, maybe it opens opens your the way you understand the music. So it's uh, open the door opens the doors to understand also different styles of music that you previously wouldn't able to understand. Yes. No, I, it was a comically pointed question. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. No, but it's a good question. Yes, it's a good question. So and 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 that leads me to the question I was posed because then you went in to see what type. How it affects, I mean, some of the effects, we know it alters the perception of time, for instance. Uh, but one of the things you found was uh, that the subjects, at least when they were coming down from the trips, they were uh, less uh, probable to recognize fear in other people. Yeah. Yeah, sort of, uh, it's a sort of made them into hippies. Sorry? It made them into hippies, sort of. No? Uh, You know, they yeah. see love and warmth and the connectivity of mankind. Yeah, yeah, even. Yeah. You're yeah. right. That's part of it, probably. Is it? Yeah, well, yeah. And it's probably one of the things why we believe that uh, psychedelics might have antidepressant effects. It may be a symptom of uh, the intoxication, but it also may be a symptom that persists for a longer time. And then, if you don't see uh, fear or sad emotions or negative emotions, then we are more happy. Yes, People who are like depressive and uh, suffer from some anxiety and so on, they're more likely to perceive these emotions from uh, people around. They're more sensitive to it. We know that. that yes. There's quite a lot of studies published on that. And uh, if we block it, then we feel more happy because we're not responsive to such negative emotions. And, and on an individual turn, level, that's good. But yeah. if, you, if you kick it up a notch to a societal level, uh, where people suddenly stop seeing problems... Because they're only seeing the positive in the world and they ignore the negative. Won't that have a, uh, an aggregate negative effect on a population? Well, uh, hard to say. I don't know if like, the hippie movement had a negative effect on the population. It definitely had a negative effect on psychedelics because they were banned afterwards. Yes. But uh, I think like, more, many of these, let's say, hippie people are now the opinion leaders that are in the governments and so on. Yes. And uh, maybe that's why we are now in the period of renaissance of psychedelic research and interest in, in uh, how they might affect our thinking and mind and connection to the world and nature and so on. So, Uh, I don't think it was a negative effect. No? I think uh, the negative effect might be that if you take it too much, then you might not see the reality as it is. Yes. And then it might be negative. It But might if be, you, because if you, if you don't see problems, you can't solve them. Yeah. Yes. But on the other hand, like uh, if you have one experience that brings you into such state... Uh, 
as you can experience with uh, higher doses of psychedelics. And it leads to uh, this effect that you are like less responsive to the negative stimuli from the environment. Then it's a very interesting experience. If you don't da- if you don't do it on a daily basis or on a frequent basis, then you still keep uh, keep your criticism or critical approach, and you can solve it. At least I must say that from my personal experience, and also when I discuss with other volunteers from the study, like the experience uh, of uh, not having so much troubles in the life. Uh, resulted in uh, much easier solve, uh, strategies to solve problems uh, okay. instead of avoiding problems. So, uh, so it's a question of moderate use, really. If, if, if you're sober, you might have too much, much angst to solve your problems. And then you take a little psilocybin, then you might be able to confront them because you get the energy. But if you do too much, then... Uh, then you, you might stop. not care about uh, yeah. other problems. That's that's theoretical. It would be nice to study that. If like people who who are like taking psychedelics on on very frequent basis, if uh, what is their level of criticism uh, to uh, or, or the level of uh, ability to solve problems. But it's oh. true. Like the easy uh, easy way in solving problems was described by most of the subjects. Like. We have a lot of things. We are overwhelmed with work and, and um, stressed and not having much free time. And after this experience, everything was so clear and so easy and just much much easier to cope with the daily daily life. It was interesting. So in the long-term study, the, the effects afterwards were overwhelming. And the negative effects were lower than the positive effects, basically. Definitely. Yes. So... Hmm. And to be honest, we didn't have anyone who suffered like uh, continuous... Uh, let's say, anxiety or something after the experience. <clears throat> but it might occur. And also Franz's uh, team described a few subjects that suffered from continuous anxiety after the experience, which was handled by psychotherapeutic approaches. So uh, it can occur in few subjects, but at least in the subjects we maintained in the study, everything seemed to be uh, positive in the long term and safe. Yeah, cool. Uh, person, on a personal level, I have a... Um I have a long-standing love relationship with hallucinogens that's been going on since I was uh, maybe 15, 16. And one of the things you said at the lecture yesterday I found very, very interesting, and it is um, the fact that um, people who use psilocybin is more likely to uh, feel and or react to other people's negative emotions. You said when they were sober, not not when they were using, but... uh, can there be uh, like this effect in me that when I was a child, I, 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 I have empathy, but not the full range of empathy. Maybe I, I pick up negative emotions from people more uh, and that makes me um, more likely to uh, appreciate the effects of uh, psilocybin, for instance. Well, uh, could be, yeah. It maybe showed you the way how to look on, on other people and how to cope with emotions of other people. And... Like, how do we uh, interact with reality and do we perceive emotions uh, of other people and how do we cope with, uh, with it in, in, in the long term? It's a way that can change over time and during our life. And we are still learning. We are still uh, having new adaptive mechanisms how to, uh, how to cope with, uh, rea- with the reality. So uh, you can... You can uh, experience experience uh, like uh, I'm a little bit stuck in you can experience stereotypes in, in your behavior which doesn't result in in, in a good outcome like that makes you for example more happy uh, and you repeat things that you are doing uh, in a bad way because you don't see what's beyond it and psychedelics might sometimes open uh, your eyes and uh, give you an idea on how to uh, solve the problems in another way, like psychotherapy does, and, and uh, it might show you these unconscious mechanisms uh, and bring them to conscious conscious level, and you might find a different strategy uh, to deal with life and deal with uh, daily life. So, yeah, why not? It could be this effect. It showed you that you don't have to care about being sad or being uh, receptive to the sadness that you observe, and it's much easier to cope with uh, with uh, 
maintaining uh, with with uh, positive emotions and looking on positive aspects in the future. That's, I don't know. No, no, I, I don't know either, but I'm asking you because you're the closest one to a person who could know in this world right now. Uh, and when, if you look at me when I was a child, it was like uh, I was very good at seeing sadness, anger and fear. And my reaction to that was to yell at these people, mm. hmm, become angry mm -hmm. and uh, defensive aggressive mm -hmm. in a way, not passive aggressive. Okay. Very actively aggressive. Okay. But uh, like I, I did my first LSD trip when I was 15. And after that, it started to decrease. I could, I could, my, my anger towards uh, people's sadness or fear or, or anger uh, decreased after that. So it, it was just an interesting find of yours that I, yeah, I yeah. really wanted to ask about. Um, then uh, we're coming to the end of the interview now. And I wanted to ask you, so in general, what were your conclusions from this the the ongoing study on psilocybin that you well the conclusion uh well i think one of the findings we didn't discuss until now and which i found really interesting uh, on our study compared to the studies uh, robin did and Francis, that we were looking on on the curse of the intoxication yeah and using these neuroimaging methods especially eg and we found some dynamics of, of the change and uh, that it shifted uh, the brain from one functional state that was at the beginning to another functional state which was in the end which was different compared to the one which was at the beginning and it was also different to the one that was uh, that was during the peak of intoxication so uh, i think uh, the, for me the main finding from from our results is uh, that psychedelics shifts us or can shift us from one functional state to another functional state and uh, theoretically and that's what we want to look at in the future study shifting to this functional new functional state might be responsible for the long-term effects of psychedelics and uh, if you look on uh, some psychiatric disorders like uh, affective disorders bipolar disorder uh, people can switch sometimes from one mood state to another mood state very quickly there are these ultra rapid cycles and yeah. Uh, that switch within within hours, days or hours, and from one state to another state. So it's definitely not, uh, from according to my opinion, it's definitely not uh, based on the fact that there is some structural change which is related to depression and some which is related to to uh, mania. So it indicates that the brain can switch easily. Uh, through different functional states. Maybe psychedelics are one of these switches that helps us to switch from one state to another state. It doesn't have to be a state which is, that, uh, which is finally better. We know that people can be uh, triggered to a state which is, uh, uh, which is uh, worse. unpleasant, worse, and suffer anxiety. I also have patients that suffer from long-term anxiety after having a bad trip and, and so on. But uh, it's just a tool which can help you to switch you from one state to another. And if it's done in a good setting with uh, good sitters or chamans, most likely it switches you to a better state than it was before. And if it's done in the wrong way, then you're risking that you will be placed somewhere into the hell. So uh, that's, for me, the most important finding, which I want to concentrate more on it, and what uh, we designed the future experiments as well to look at. So do you think that just showing people with the help of uh, psilocybin, for instance, how easily they can switch between states. Do you think uh, the easiness of the switch uh, is responsible for the long-term effect? Because what you're describing basically is you're describing my two modes of being. You're describing between depression and mania. Yeah. So uh, the hallucinogen showed me that I don't have to be depressed. I can easily switch my brain and go into mania instead. Well, not going to mania, but going to a <laughs> state which is like, uh, because, you know, bipolars, especially these rapid cycles, they can exist sometimes at the mixed state or it's so yeah. rapidly switching from one state to another. And uh, Don't put <laughs> down mania, my friend. I love the mania. Yeah, okay. <laughs> some manias are good, some manias are not so good, yes. especially if they are so-called dysphoric mania. Okay, uh, yeah. Then it's very unpleasant. But, uh, yeah, uh, so switching to this new form of state which might be more let's say stable and which might uh, help you to cope with the daily life much better than before it's a very important thing that's maybe why it's also antidepressive uh, why it has also antidepressant effects and uh, that's a way how we should probably start to look on our brain as a system that can exist in various 
functional states or energy states, entropy states, or how we call it. And uh, it's a way to learn how we can switch in between, in between these states, not only using psychedelics. There's a meditation ongoing studies that uh, look on whether we can switch uh, our brain into the same state during meditation as during the psychedelic experience and so on. So uh, there's a lot of other techniques that probably can lead to the same effect, psychotherapy and whatever. Acting. is just one. Acting. Acting, yeah, professional acting, yeah. that is. Yeah. That's what actually what I'm what I'm training myself because I'm normally very shy and like speaking in front of people. It's very very difficult for me. But people usually say I don't look like that. No, you don't. Uh, I I found the lecture yesterday to be very enlightening, and I want to thank you so much for coming to Sweden and shedding some light to our to our poor savage population about the proper use of hallucinogens. Okay. Thank you so much, Tomas. Yeah, and thank you for having time and for this interview. And I'm glad it, I'm happy to be to be back in Sweden and I hope to come back and to explore more the country and we're more than happy to have you thank you thank you yeah yes. thanks and thank you for listening and supporting this podcast on Patreon just type in Aron Flam that's Aron with one A and Flam with one M as in the old English word for false pretense Flam where the word Flim Flam comes from Or if you live in Sweden, you can swish your support to 0768943737, 0768943737. Until next time, this is Aron Flam for Deconstructive Critique. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.